Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Colin Hambrook, editor of Disability Arts Online, chats with Benedict Phillips, artist and activist, about his work, The Agenda of the Aggressive Dyslexic, which was published 25 years ago. This podcast contains strong language. I'm Colin Hambrook, editor of Disability Arts Online, and I'm really pleased today to be introducing Benedict Phillips, artist and provocateur, um, works in a multitude of practices. And um, Benedict, yeah, it was 25 years ago that um, I first published the agenda of the aggressive dyslexic in Disability Arts in London magazine, which I was uh, editing at the time with Ruth Bailey. Disability Arts was very much about protest. There was a lot of um, kind of discussion and protest on the streets and, and protest kind of bringing disability communities together. Mostly it was around access for for a kind of physical and sensory access provision uh, and so seeing this this thing landing on my door i think it was suzanne ball who who in, kind of introduced us and um the agenda of the aggressive dyslexic as a really powerful protest about um ideas that we really hadn't encountered before you know it was it was the first kind of real backlash against the neurotypical world how did how did it feel to you kind of having having the agenda of the aggressive dyslexic your manifesto published i I think one of the one of the things that's kind of interesting about it thinking back was that um i didn't set out to have it published um it wasn't that's what I hadn't got to that stage yet um, I'd I'd I'd, uh, uh, I'd met Suzanne and become friends with Suzanne um, I think in 92 93 um, and I, I I'd sat down you know as a visual artist that you know you could you kind of write manifestos about things I sat down and I wrote this thing and it was just completely a kind of gut reaction a sudden kind of coming out um, and I, I just thought, oh, Suzanne would be a really good person to send this to and to, to say, what do you think about this? You know, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is this, what do you think? Um, and she just immediately said, um, can I send this to my friend Colin? <laughs> um he's 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 on the team of this magazine disability arts in london uh magazine and i was like yeah no yeah yeah okay um and 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 clearly she kind of communicated that she she liked what i'd written um in some ways it was another artwork and i put it out into the world and it it kind of it, it it found a place to be presented um 
in a way, the impact of it didn't really show itself, didn't really uh, 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 kind of exert itself on me until um, until I was invited to be, um, you know, on the editorial committee uh, for the magazine. And that's when I had uh, some really interesting kind of experience, which is that I walked into um, a room full of people, um, all of whom were disabled, um, I'd never thought about or considered myself as disabled. I'd not thought in those terms. Um, that had never been presented to me. Um, and and I thought, oh, none of these people are dyslexic, but everybody in the room knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and that, for me, was, the, was this, like, massive leap. It was like a person who's been excluded from society for no fault of their own knows what I'm talking about. Whereas someone who maybe looks just like me, another white man, who's, you know, five foot nine, has no idea what I'm talking about. Um, uh, and just says things that wind me up constantly with their complete lack of understanding of what, what I've experienced. You know, so it's like, oh, this isn't, this really isn't about the way people appear. This is about the experience they've had that connects them. The manifesto is a, is a very powerful and angry statement against I exclusion uh, and, uh, a, and a very kind of powerful piece of advocacy for uh, thinking in alternative ways, thinking outside the box, thinking in creative ways. Where did it lead next in your thinking around making work about the oppressive nature of the neurotypical world? I think um, after I'd written it, I realised that um, I, was in, I was in a fairly kind of uh, uh, unique kind of position in a way um, that, that because I'm so severely dyslexic, um, you know, I was in the special educational unit notionally being supported specifically for this in mainstream education from like the age of eight until the age of 16. I'm leaving school illiterate. It was like, I am severely dyslexic. There is no way around this. I'm, it's that acceptance in my mid-twenties that I was never going to learn how to read and write within the system. Um, and it's that's what created the piece of writing, but also that's what spurred me on. It was like, well, then this has to be understood. It, it has to connect to people. And I, I did the first performance of it um, on Speaker's Corner in January 1996. And what was ironic about that was that I stood up there and started reading the agenda of the aggressive dyslexic. And I started becoming disorientated. I started losing my place, um, you know, uh, uh, having to start again, having to reread, uh, uh, losing a sense of where I was within the text. It was like the text which talks about that experience was then exhibiting itself in me. Um, and then the audience started saying to me, you know, asking me questions, what are you talking about? And I started talking back. And my audience in like 30 seconds, you know, uh, uh, was suddenly four or five times as big. <laughs> and I was fluent and communicative because I wasn't constrained by the process that I was there to talk about, which was the system of reading and writing. 
And and can you remember the kinds of conversations that 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 happened from from that performance? I think I think having put myself out there to a certain extent, I I started to kind of get feedback. It was like there was a I had enough of there was enough of that information out there that I talked about these things that I did start to get a lot of people kind of uh, talking to me. But what most people were talking about. Um, sometimes dyslexic parents, you know, sometimes uh, fellow dyslexics uh, trying to understand and trying to relate um, to, to someone else's experience. Um, and I was acutely aware that, uh, that, that the way that people find each other in our culture 25 years ago is through reading and writing. And here's these <laughs> hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who don't do that who need other people to talk to about this, you know. So I became acutely aware of that particular, that particular kind of uh, uh, catch-22. Very, very isolating. The, the present figures say that uh, under, under 20% of dyslexics are identified by the time they're 18 within mainstream education. So actually, you know, that the vast, the vast majority of dyslexics um, are unidentified within school. And even if they did a basic thing of saying, right, we know it's, you know, five to 10% of the population. Okay, just look at your figures in your school. Have you identified five to 10% of the population of your school as dyslexic? Because we know those are the figures. Um, yeah, just as a starting point. It, it's it's a t it's a terrible situation in many respects, and not surprising that that um, so many people that you know end up marginalised and in in prison. And um, the statistics there are pretty shocking, aren't they? Well, the, yeah. I mean, it's it's over fifty percent of young offenders are identified as dyslexic, um, and it's almost like the exam they give you, isn't it? I think you know, it's like. Uh, you know, <laughs> you turn up in the Young Offenders Institute and it's like, oh, okay, we've got a damn good idea why, partly why you became disenfranchised, why you fell up through the, the system. Um, we know that the time when, when, when adolescents start to get involved in, in, you know, in kind of, you know, what could be described as slightly dodgy subcultural activity, you know, uh, petty crime or just hanging out or being in positions where they can get told off is around the time that dyslexia really starts to impact. When, when the, when the um, you know, when people say to kids at, at a young age that they're, you know, oh, you're, you know, that you're falling behind. It's like, you know, that's the beginning of it. And then it's like this system just, you know, all through primary school just undermines you. You just go, why would I want to be, why would I want to be part of this, you know? Um, and, and most kids can work out at 11 if they haven't picked it up by then, then they're never going to get anything out of this system. And the work that you've been developing through performance, through sculpture, through public art, over the last 25 years has very much been about turning those notions of you know dyslexia as a bad thing as something that needs curing inverted commas on 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 their head and 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 presenting dyslexia as as a kind of positive attribute something that that gives uh, ha has a lot to give to society in 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 terms of um 
unique thought processes that that don't exist within the neurotypical world um so there's there's quite a catalog of 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 work that we can talk about that that kind of came out of that f initial publication um and i i believe the kind of one of the next stages was the de development of the benedictionary can you tell us a little bit about about that yeah yeah i mean i i i, I I'd left London and I'd, I'd become a full-time professional artist, um, I, I think, uh, about 96. And um, as part of the year of the artist, 99 to 2000, I, I got this, uh, this research grant, um, The Myth of Dyslexia, is, is what I called it. And during that, I kind of um, realised dyslexia wasn't a single thing. It, uh, it didn't exhibit itself in, in, in simple ways that people could simply respond to. Um, and from this, I took all of the poetry, all of my creative writing, and I, I, I drew out um, over a thousand words uh, that I spelt consistently in my own way. And I paired them up against, um, uh, uh, well, in fact, my brother went, you know, went through it and he, uh, he kind of paired them up and he put a standard English spelling against them and uh, created this database and then I worked with a computer programmer in 2001 I had the online uh, Benedictionary and you could dump you know hundreds of words into it and press Benedictionize and it would uh, translate it into into dyslexic or my dyslexic and the the irony that my name kind of means blessed word or word of God or, you know, um, but, but it means the word, uh, 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 you know, Benedict. It's, it, it just seemed like, wow, this is just a great coincidence. That's <laughs> I was always supposed to be called the word. But I think people really started to get the sense of humour that I was um, trying to communicate that it's uh, that I wasn't I think this is the thing I wasn't out for revenge I was out to communicate to to to, to I was you know trying to find points of contact um, and I was trying to understand and trying to collaborate with 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 the audience in the world for them to enjoy you know um, what I was doing I, re I remember it being a, a, a lot of fun um playing with that online online version of it and that sort of playful um kind of approach then sort of led to you thinking about the the dunce hat and taking it as uh turning it on its head to, to, as a symbol representing positive interpretations of knowledge and understanding uh, and um it was the white div wasn't it the dyslexic intelligent vision the white div that was the first manifestation of of the um uh, of the div i'd been thinking about the dunce cap for ages i really like this idea of the of uh, of you know the kind of surrealist tradition or the protest tradition of taking the thing that's used against you taking it off the aggressor the persecutor and saying actually bugger you I'm going to have that. That's mine. So I was taking the dunce cap and saying, right, this is the hat of empowerment, uh, the hat of knowledge, of information, um, and trying to represent it in that way. Um, I was acutely aware that I hated, I, and I still hate them, 
these kind of like these images of small cowering children uh, that are used so often to, to, to represent the dyslexic um, less so now um, but 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 they were very common you know it's like well you know that that child looks like they're more affected by bad lighting you know and malnutrition than they do by dyslexia what on earth is that about so I was interested in the way that how do you how do you visually represent these things, but also really concerned that that I might become the dyslexic artist. It's like, um, and so the idea of creating an alternative persona to be able to say things that maybe I didn't even really believe because I could be provocative because I could be someone else. I could explore that. Um, you know, and be playful. And so invisible conversations, um, you know, and my misspelt youth and all of these kind of things that started to come out in 2005 as part of my residency at, um, at Yorkshire Art Space, you know, we're all kind of about, about being, yeah, playing these games, you know, but also trying to connect to people. Um, and, and that's when I came up with this, you know, this slogan, um, you know, uh, 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 everyone can be dyslexic, you just have to try harder. Uh, and, and lots of people got that really, really quickly. It was like, oh, okay, you know, the whole object of people coming and doing this exam and becoming dyslexic. I love the idea of the, uh, the white teacher div and um, bringing people into the space and uh, asking them to choose whether to go through the lexic door or the, the dyslexic door in order to be... Uh, uh, to yeah, encounter this ex ex exam situation it's uh, 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 a lot of a lot of fun H how 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 did it kind of work at the time that that was part of the Yorkshire art space it was residency. yes yeah so I had this great big space so I decided to um, you know I went out for weeks promoting this performance art piece because they didn't have performance art there um, and that was part of yeah part part of these kind of provocative statements was trying to get people into the room um, and then I had these I had these two people these two reception people who were saying right there's a door for the dyslexics and the door for the lexics you know so people would be asked questions when they came in and they'd be given a badge which they'd wear around their neck again it's like this is a physical representation of the invisible you know um and i've been using the term lexic for some time and it you know as a counterbalance i'd found the political imbalance it was like normal or dyslexic so dyslexic is not normal. That's not good. How can we have a debate? If you start from a position of being right, I'm essentially wrong. So the lexic dyslexic was about discussing people's personal experience, not just mine, but the lexic experience. And so by creating that, uh, people started to talk to me about their experience of language from a non-dyslexic perspective. And I realised there are lots and lots of peculiar relationships with language, you know. Um, that was one of the things that really kind of, you know, that really started to draw itself out, you know, uh, which was great. And that's when I came across things like hyperlexia, uh, which is this, you know, people who read, and I've met a hyperlexic in the UK and in America, you know, on my, my excursions. And, and um, this thing where people read so fast they actually can't hold on to the information but they can't stop themselves reading at super speed 
it's become such a kind of ingrained something about the way that they see things, uh, you know. Um, and someone said to me very early on that, that reading dyslexic text, partly my spelling, slowed them down so much they could take the information in. <laughs> That's kind of kind of how that you know that how that kind of came about. Someone saw some of my poetry and went, "This is great." I, I you know I actually read it. <laughs> And understood it. It just slowed me down so much, you know. Aha! I am the cure. <laughs> I know. I I remember one of the very moving things, stories that you told us about that um, uh, lexic dyslexic exam uh, was people coming coming out to you for the first time that uh, um, about their dyslexia about you know having having hidden it right through their childhoods and um very kind of um powerful experience for a, a lot of the participants well i i also i get um uh i get i get quite negative experience uh, kind of responses as well you know um i certainly had you know quite uh, a few dyslexics you just say uh, you know, shut up complaining and just get on with it. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, which is really interesting. Um, and that does come on to one of the problems uh, about, about talking about dyslexia is, is, is how incredibly different it is for every dyslexic. Um, so, you know, and it, it's, uh, as, as some of my friends who are dyslexic have said to me, Benedict, I'm dyslexic, but I'm not Benedict dyslexic. <laughs> and what they mean by that is that essentially they can essentially they can read and write if they if they if they review a piece of text that they've written um then they can they can pick up you know what's happening in the spelling in the grammar in the you know they can they can see it and i graduated at 21 i learned how to spell my middle name when i was 27 at that age, you know, I, I, I carried a checkbook back in the day and a paying in book. I had one, two, three, twenty, thirty, all written out in the back of my checkbook. So I didn't have to ask people how to spell two or thirteen um, when I was filling in a check, you know. Um, uh, 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 it doesn't sit well with the idea of, of, of being a kind of young, you know, autonomous man in our society. Um, there are real, there are real problems the way that subject and object get mixed up. Um, and I guess what I mean by that is that uh, I see, I see these days more and more criticism of object over subject. So someone writes a tweet, okay, which might be racist sexist stupid idiotic and deeply offensive right but the critique of it will be the spelling you know they'll say that person's an idiot because they can't spell and that at its core is just locked into our society it's everywhere so people don't critique what people are saying they're not prepared they're too lazy to actually think about what's wrong with that statement and critique that, they just go, oh, stupid, can't spell. And you just think, this is locked in, you know. This isn't going anywhere fast. You, you took the Invisible Conversations 
out to um, Kentucky. Did, did you did you get different responses in in America? I was amazed at how the kind of the life, the kind of the experience, the educational experience, the kind of experience of being a dyslexic adult, um, you know, in the UK through the portraits I did where people were, we had this conversation and they drew something onto a blackboard and I used that as their context as the background and photographed them and then did that in the States. Um, it was, yeah, it was like part of the research was, is it the same? And it was, it was like, I was amazed at how, it was like, okay, this is a, this is a kind of Western culture uh, thing, you know, and it's, you know, like, uh, like fast food, it's the same everywhere, <laughs> you know. Uh, the same mistakes, you know. That led on, didn't it, to the three um, D thinkers in a two D world, which I, th- I think, I think you did the first presentation of that um, in in two thousand and seven. Was that 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 was an invite from a university? If I remember. So, yeah. Right. So I, well, I I kind of I'd I'd kind of done this collaborative performance where and in conversation with uh, an artist called Gavin McClafferty and uh, uh, um, down in Stroud and um, and it kind of really drawn out where drawn out a lot of ideas um, and then I got this I got this. Uh, this invitation to speak at because um, I because I'd always included talking about this part of my practice in um, in my lectures. I got this invitation. Uh, there was a national pedagogy conference at Leeds Art College, um, and uh, and I got this contact and said, "Would you like to talk about your dyslexia work? Um, come in and talk about that." And uh, and I said, "Yes, I would." And I said, uh, and the talk will be called 3D Thinkers in a 2D World, to, to, to try and communicate immediately the, the kind of the idea of the different thinking, about the difference between the, the individual, the 3D thinker, and the world, which is flat and rigid, um, you know, hard to fold and bend in interesting ways, you know. Um, yeah, so I went and did that, and that was really interesting. I got, um, I got, I got a few invites out of that, um, you know, uh, uh, and they're all professional development talks. And that was really interesting because when I was doing those in universities around the country, um, be loads of staff going, actually, this isn't, this isn't just a problem for the students. <laughs> they were kind of going, it was like, you know, staff were looking about, but, you know, I was going, so who's dyslexic in this room? You know, and like a lot of colleagues were going, oh, my God. Oh, you as well. <laughs> oh, how do you co- how do you cover that up? How do you navigate the system? It's like it's really really hard work. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So that was really interesting, kind of doing that. Um, yeah, I, I I love the idea of um, of dyslexia as heightened depth perception. I think it it kind of it explains the the lengths that you have to go to 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 adapt and to to kind of um, Work out strategies for for survival, uh, largely. Well, the, yeah, the, I, I think there's also one of the things is that there's um, the neuroscience in a funny kind of way is catching up with a lot of the things that I just thought when I was younger. So I find it really interesting that um, countries that are recognised as having populations that are best 
at identifying when uh, public information news is true or not are countries where children don't start to learn to read and write until they're at, late, at least seven years old. Okay? So being able to identify the truth correlates with an education system where you don't learn how to read until you're seven or start learning to reading until you're seven as a, within the state education. Um, and the neuroscience is starting to suggest, or certain, you know, science is always in a conversation and in an argument about things, but there are theories and ideas that essentially the way a child's brain develops when they aren't taught to read and write or can't access reading and writing when they're younger um, is, is, it means that they, they, they use the other half of their brain. They use different parts of their brain and they actually develop problem solving, you know, and that very much is about the physical world and about coming up with lots and lots of answers to the same question rather than the one-off, linear, fixed answer, right and wrong. And I think that's partly maybe what drives dyslexics into the design industries, because it is about, you know, this really high percentage of people in, in certain industries who are dyslexic are in industries about problem solving. And they may be hardwired. And actually, if they were tested for problem solving skills, you might find that, you know, and it's it's training. We are, we 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 do respond to our environments. It it's about opening things up, isn't it? And and um, resisting that that kind of flattening of uh, our thinking processes. Answers to problems appear as pictures in my brain, which is a good and a bad thing. <laughs> um, lots of people, I think, are three D thinkers. Think in these kinds of ways. They're not necessarily dyslexic. If you are dyslexic, you have to rely on it and you have to push it to the front to help you navigate the world. That's the big difference, you know. It's not just who we are, but what we use that creates these situations. Um, and so if you have incredibly strong images in your head, um, you start to rely on them as truth. If they're that powerful, you know, if they're that fixed. And I do find that um, when I was younger, I had to be very careful for the fantasy and the truth uh, 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 not to get too mixed up because actually the images that I created in my head were stronger than the images that were in front of my eyes sometimes and I've come across that it's it's uh, the phrase I use uh, that the phrase that I came up to describe this for people is natural born bullshitters <laughs> which is this you know, which, which you know, uh, uh, it's kind of like, oh, that's not necessarily very, uh, you know, complimentary. But, uh, but I've come across a lot of dyslexics and known they were dyslexic and said, oh, you're dyslexic. Because I could immediately see they were talking shit. I mean that in the nicest possible way. What I mean is that they had a really powerful, strong argument that they had created in their own mind. And they were following through with it. Um, so that's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting thing. It's, uh, is that a superpower? Is that one of these dyslexic superpowers people keep on talking about, which make me really nervous when people talk about being better or worse than other people? Yeah, it, it's part of that kind of uh, oppressive way in which society kind of needs to kind of create hierarchies. Um, but it's also as a kind of shout out. So it's a kind of like it's uh, trying to take a position. So it's like, um, this is a massive thing in dyslexia for, for, you know, especially working with kids, I think, is it's like, um, 
you know, here you are in this appalling education system that was designed 150 years ago that uh, would be great if you were going to go and work in a factory, no doubt, and all you need to do is be told what to do constantly every hour and not be taught how to communicate or, or to, 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 to work collaboratively, right? Okay. Oh, you don't fit into this. Uh, but it's okay because you've got a dyslexic superpower. It's like... Well, if you really had a dyslexic superpower, then what you'd do is you would pick up your lightning rod and you would smite the school. So you don't really have a dyslexic superpower, do you? Because <laughs> that's the first thing you would do, is burn it to the ground and start again with some empathy, you know, with some understanding. With a school with dyslexic teachers in it, could you imagine what training would, would, would have to take place the structure of a university course to become a teacher if you were dyslexic. They would have to throw everything out in the same way that they can't say that someone with a physical disability, somebody in a chair, can be a teacher. I mean, how many schools can you get into? Oh, you're teaching upstairs today. Great. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just, it's, it's just the world is full of barriers. And I see, I see dyslexics saying they're not disabled. And I, and I just look at them and I say, you don't know what disability is. Don't cut yourself off. You've been marginalised and now you're marginalising yourself from people who could probably, you know, other individuals who could really teach you something about how to protest how to function in the world that's the social model of disability in a nutshell we've been in this conversation haven't we for 25 years just between us you know let alone all the other people talking about these things you know it's in there in the agenda of the aggressive dyslexic you know um, i say very very specifically fuck the lot of you you know um, <laughs> this is who i am this is how i'm going to do things because i have to claim it to have any pride, to, to have any autonomy. I have to claim who I am. That was the core, wasn't it, that, 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 that statement. And you've, cre you've created some really powerful images, you know, through the, the, the idea of the div, and you, you went on to create the, the red div and the grey div. Can, can you tell, tell us a bit about those personas? I was invited to go and do a lecture performance, and uh, and this was at the this was in Belfast at the um, International Symposium on Electronic Art, and I thought I need to go and do three D thinkers in the two D world. This is about perception. This is about how we navigate. This is about about you know uh, maybe the way the universe, our universe, our, our, our social spaces are going to develop. So I thought right, well this is. This is a new div. This is the evangelist. Um, and so I had this, um, I had this red suit made um, and the red hat of empowerment and, uh, and all the little details that go with it. The tree is a very intriguing aspect of the red div. Yes, yes. So, so the suit was made in, in, in 2009 and that performance, the first in that suit, the image wasn't made until two years later. I created this uh, keep everything simple because it becomes complicated all by itself number two which is that tree is a model of of society that I'd kind of done there's a print posters where the end of every single branch has a word on it uh, and it's just this kind of cacophony of all these different typesets and 
without a filter over the top, um, you know, these coloured filters, you can't see where the sentences are. It's just gobbledygook. But actually the tree is full of all of these, these statements from all these different perspectives. So I was trying to build a kind of sculpture, three-dimensional object, to try and describe the way that information was disseminated. This is my, it's a kind of, it's a piece of architecture to try and talk about, um, you know, the complexity of society. And also there are precursors. So there are objects in all of the photographs, there are objects from the previous divs and from the divs to come. So the, the, the character after that's the grey div and he's the architect. Um, he's the one who sees the world in this kind of three-dimensional way, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And also there's the teeth clamp in the, in the red div image, this embossing stamp, which I use for, for putting my teeth marks into the, uh, the certificates that people got for sitting the exam in becoming dyslexic, um, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all in that film. There's a, there's a film from, from 2005 called The Div, um, and the exam's in there, and you see, you see all of these different things, you know. The, the Grey Div, the architect Div, he was involved in some conversations about architecture and about approaches to architecture. And I remember us talking about this, this kind of dyslexic architect process. I was really interested in what information fed into uh, designing public space, uh, into designing, you know, uh, not only the, uh, our, our streets, but our buildings, you know, and, and I was thinking about all the things that you can't see that are kind of invisible to us. Uh, again, sort of thinking about the dyslexic experience to a certain extent, um, you know, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, uh, and so I, so I thought, well, I'm going to investigate the landscape and then I'm going to show it to people, but I'm going to show them stuff they couldn't see. Um, so the first tour, these tours that I did, were where I filmed, um, I filmed the culverts, the river underneath the city, um, and then I had that placed on the side of a suitcase. I, I designed and built this suitcase um, and I, with a mini computer in it. I had to find you know, specialist battery technology. I had to connect all these different things. And I was doing this residency. Um, luckily, uh, um, you know, in, in, in Sheffield, this alternative acts of architecture, uh, access space in Sheffield, and uh, they could really help me pull all, all this together. But the end of it was I was walking along the street as the, as the div in grey, um, you know, above a river, which was on the suitcase, which people and behind walls and walking over great big junctions of, you know, over great big, you know, with all these trucks and cars and all these traffic islands. At the position, there is a, there's a, you know, like a two, three hundred year old kind of stone covered uh, 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 river running below our feet. And there it is. It's like that's a factor in, in where we are. So trying to discuss and think about the things we can't see. Um, you know, what should, what should inform us, you know, what things that we, we, we haven't acknowledged um, should inform the way we develop and design the spaces around us, you know. But also that idea of transporting yourself to another place through your imagination. Um, I, I see that as part of the 3D thinking. More, more recently, you've, you've been kind of developing the, um, the how to be dyslexic 
project. Um, I, 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 I like presented as, as if it's a choice, you know, um, and, and, and again, kind of subverting that notion of choice. And uh, um, can you talk us through a bit around how, how that project kind of came about and, and um, where it is now? How to be a dyslexic artist is my, my research project that I've been doing um, for the last sort of three years or so. Um, took quite a while to find to find partners and to d- develop a kind of funding structure for that. And, and that's all leading towards an exhibition, which is, you know, essentially should be happening now, but isn't going to happen until next year now. Um, and it was this, yeah, it was kind of how to be a dyslexic artist. It was the kind of question. It's like, well, you know... It, Partly, we're, uh, 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 let's just let's just take the artist forward and see what happens. <laughs> you know, how do we how do we navigate the world as a dyslexic? And um, working with other, with other people has been a really really core cool part of that. Um, you know, so so apart from access space in Sheffield, I also went and worked with an artist called Abby Watson, and um, we've actually been in contact for quite quite a few years. Um, Abby, Abby wrote about me in her undergraduate degree and, and, and published a book. Uh, and, and, and she said, and she drew out, and she saw some really... Well, I, I was like, it was, it was just great to have someone have a look at some of the things I'd done and really understand it. Um, and she's, she's dyslexic and she's dyspraxic. And, uh, and we worked together um, up at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and uh, doing this How to Be a Dyslexic Artist um, and I worked with some of the students there and some of the staff there uh, to, to look at creating alternative personas based on uh, uh, internal experiences about, about thinking about who we are, um, what is the same and different, and then using that as, as the base from which to build this alternative persona to present to the world. And then, and then I built a lot bigger project which uh, took place at a place called the Tetley in Leeds where I worked with... Um, 11 adult dyslexics um, who were kind of between the ages of about 20 and 40 um, and uh, with with no no need to be an art specialist with a team there that could uh, that, could, that could help people you know develop and make whatever they needed to it was all about what's your idea what's your experience what are you trying to express let's explore that and that ended up with this series of collaborative portraits, essentially. They created these personas and, 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 and I photographed them. I think what's interesting as well is that we're... Um, obviously, I can't say who, but I can say that I think three people there discovered further things about, about uh, their differences, essentially. I think the knock-on from it is probably still is still there with people, you know. Part of this project has has been about looking back over the last twenty five years and 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 kind of collating all of this work that you've made around your experience of of dyslexia um, and uh, in, into a book. This this little world pandemic came along and kind of really kind of uh, put the kibosh on that a bit. Um, along with my exhibition and uh, uh, you know so I guess the one thing that's not immovable the one thing that uh, that I that I really wanted to kind of mark in some way was um, we have we have the, this 25th anniversary of me writing this first 
piece that went out publicly um, that, that, you know, in retrospect has affected and informed the way I've thought about, about things. Um, and at the time I didn't, you know, I, I just thought I was shouting. But actually looking back, I, it seems fairly, fairly concise, some of the things I was saying. Um, so I thought, well, in a way I wanted to kind of come, come back to it, um, kind of revisit it. And I realised people I'd known for years had never, um, had never heard it. Given the the current crisis, you're you're planning a um, an online iteration of a performance of the agenda of the aggressive dyslexic. It's an inter- it's an interesting question in a way um, because in terms of ha- how I do these things, because um, often my performances are done to a live audience in a space, and I kind of I, there's a kind of there's a bit of uh, call and response, you know. There are reveals within my performances where people kind of go, oh, there are surprises. And, and actually, their response and their interaction with what I'm doing when they discover things, you know, is, uh, is part of that. And so I'm really trying to assess, I'm trying to understand how, how I can move into making work, um, you know, uh, uh, for the camera. So obviously I do that um, for still images, for making photographic artworks, but, um, so this is a very different thing. This is a different collaboration. It's not, with, it's not necessarily with an audience, it's with a filmmaker or, or with whoever else I'm trying to bounce things backwards and forwards from. So, you know, so that, that's interesting. And, um, and then there's a way of try and revisit, uh, to, to write, kind of revisit the agenda of the aggressive dyslexic. I've written a whole A to Z, um, which I'm sort of writing and rewriting and writing and rewriting. Um, you know, so there's a, for each letter of the alphabet, I, I, I've, I've written a, a statement and, uh, and, uh, you know, and a, and a short uh, chapter about an aspect of, of, of dyslexia. If you are dyslexic, how do you how do you how do you navigate a text heavy society, text laden? Not less so. I mean, when I was younger, there was less of it. You know, the notion of that technology makes it easier for dyslexics is ridiculous. Um, I use voice activated technology. <laughs> I can't write big documents without using voice activated. I can't do it. It's just just you know my brain is going in so many different directions at the same time it can't focus on you know trying to work out what this shape is i'm putting on the page and try and remember what the next shape means it's really 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 just amazingly complex process um but what happens is that when i've been doing it a lot i start writing notes the the you know, it's like my relationship to any kind of recognisable spelling. Uh, the more I use the Dragon Dictate or something like that, or the, the voice activated on the computer, you know, um, it, uh, my ability to kind of hold on to, you know, even a phonetic spelling system just starts to dissolve <laughs> and disappear, you know. So it's like, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so now what it means is that if I want to sit down and write something, I have to be in a room with a computer, uh, with a microphone on my head. That is the only place I can sit down and seriously write anything. 
but still here I am at 50 defined by by that experience you know um, I think one of the things that people do forget about dyslexia is that dyslexia is a construct of state education dyslexia was defined by the word dyslexia which is a word that was specifically generated to describe it 140 years ago and what else happened 140 years ago forced western state education those two things came into being at the same time before 140 years ago dyslexia was known about it was called word blindness you know um, people think word blindness is the old word for dyslexia from the 1970s or 80s no it's from the 1840s and 50s <laughs> so it's like here we are in a situation we the word dyslexia created to describe dyslexia 140 years ago you know um, and we still have this kind of uh, mentality of state education which is that they think that a class should have 30 in it. That, uh, that, that teachers should be the exemplar of the drone, you know, leading the class. I just think that, you know, the bottom line is that the diversity of people that are in the world should be represented in the world. That's how it should work. When you think about the physical and mental health impact of good education, which is about, about responding, about empathy, you know, um, you know that, that the classes should be of 10 students, all classes. And that would mean we'd have more teachers, yeah? Which is great, because they'd have work. <laughs> That'd be people with work, not so stressed out because they'd have a class of 10, that they would be able to invest in. Those kids' physical, mental health, that the, the impact on society, the function and the use of those individuals in society. If you've got 10 kids in a class, you can find out who they are and you can have a conversation, you can empathise with them. And from that position, you really can teach and learn. That's the ideal. But the div, you know, the div in black will be I, uh, saying something about this. Disability Arts Online will be um, pre presenting that um, at the beginning of October. So we we really look forward to that. It's, I, it's, it's been a wonderful privilege to follow your work, Benedict, for 25 years. I've just, yeah, it's unbelievable. How uh, how quickly the time has gone. Is is there anything uh, more that you want to, to to add? Well, you know me so much I couldn't even begin. So maybe I should just leave it there. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews, and learning opportunities.